Bienvenidos a Crónicas de la Raza. Welcome to La Raza Chronicles. On tonight's program, we feature an interview with our own Nina Serrano speaking to Mark Eisner around his book on Pablo Neruda and the in-depth research he did to tell his story. We also bring you an interview around the first Kizomba Festival in Los Angeles and let our Bay Area Kizomba lovers know about this festival. And we also premiere some music by... Camilo y los Robot Ninjas, as well as other important Bay Area music that that you'll get to hear first here on our show. All this and much more, stay tuned. This is Nina Serrano for La Raza Chronicles. Mark Eisner's new book, Neruda, The Poet's Calling, has been described as, quote, the most definitive biography to date of the poet Pablo Neruda, a moving portrait of one of the most intriguing and influential figures in Latin American history. Few poets have captured the global imagination like Pablo Neruda. In his native Chile, across Latin America, and in many other parts of the world, his name and legacy have become almost synonymous with liberation movements and with the language of erotic love. Neruda, the Poet's Calling, is a product of 15 years of research by Mark Eisner, writer, translator, and documentary filmmaker. The book vividly depicts Neruda's monumental life, potent verse, and ardent belief in the, quote, poet's obligation, unquote, to use poetry for social good. It braids together three major strands of Neruda's life, his world-revered poetry, his political engagement, and his tumultuous, even controversial, personal life forming a single, cohesive narrative of intimacy and breath. The fascinating events of Neruda's life are interspersed with Eisner's thoughtful examination of the poems, both as works of art in their own right and as mirrors of Neruda's life and times. End quote. Well, I certainly agree. As a Neruda fan since I first discovered him as an emerging San Francisco leftist Latina poet in the 1960s, though I actually filmed him in Chile on the campaign trail with Salvador Allende in 1970, all the way to today I've been a fan. I had also loved Mark Eisner's video with memorable music by Kike Cruz about Neruda, and I saw it many, many years ago. I found reading his latest work, Neruda, The Poet's Calling, a very satisfying and in some ways disturbing and provocative book. I learned about Neruda's life, his political and literary context, Chile, Latin America, and about poetry itself. Years ago, I recognized Mark immediately as a kindred spirit a poet, a translator, editor, and activist. So, of course, I'm thrilled to have him as a guest on La Raza Chronicles, where we can revere Neruda and also deal with the upsetting elements of racism, machismo, and male supremacy that have plagued our world for millennium. Bienvenido, Mark. Thanks, Nina. Mark, let's begin with giving listeners a taste of your book, which reads as easy as a page-turning novel. Thanks, Nina. It's a tremendous honor to be here with you, and I actually got a little tear in my eye from all you said, so it means so much to me. Gracias. I'm actually going to read from that night which you were at in 2004 where we were celebrating Neruda's Centennial at Theater Arcto in San Francisco with Kijarema, and other poets such as Lawrence Ferlinghetti, Robert Haas, Jack Hirschman, and Stephen Kessler, showing my film, not just my film, a film many were involved with, the first screening of it, narrated by Isabel Allende. And I'll start by reading from these last pages of the epilogue, which is actually the last pages of the book. It's only in the introduction and the epilogue that I speak in the first person. 
The evening was sold out. The 350-person theater filled, and an energetic crowd filled the expansive lobby, hoping to get in, too. The house crew set up extra loudspeakers so everyone could at least hear the performances. I thought of Neruda's fabled appearance at the 92nd Y in New York in 1966, the poet rock stars reading so packed organizers set up closed-circuit televisions for those who couldn't get into the auditorium. Now, half a century later, a full century after his birth, in a theater in San Francisco, it was happening again, a testament to the enduring potency of Neruda's poetry, of its continued resonance. Lawrence Ferlinghetti took the stage. He spoke of Neruda's legacy, of its hundred years of beatitudes. He read his own 1960 poem, written while in Machu Picchu, titled Hidden Door, which he had dedicated to Neruda. Watching the audience from behind the stage, I could sense Neruda's presence filling that hall in all his enduring complexity. The love poet, the political poet, the experimental poet, Neruda the communist, Neruda the womanizer, Neruda the sailor on earth. We were there that night to celebrate Neruda, not just the idealized poet, but the whole man, the multifaceted human being. After the readings, we screened the documentary. It opened with Isabel Allende's narration, recounting her tale of taking Neruda's book of odes with her into exile, as Neruda appeared on screen, wearing a poncho and gray beret, walking along the coast at Isla Negra. The foam crests behind him as he looks out, then points to the sea, the sea that was such a part of him, a dominant metaphor. In some magnetic way, he once wrote, I move in the university of the waves. The sea, wide and vast, was like all the multitudes he contained and poured forth, wide and vast like the plenitude of his soul, as well as the plenitude of his ego. And like that sea that seemed a part of him, Neruda was so complex and yet at times so simple. With all the different aspects of Neruda and all their contradictions, at his core he is one great body, still in all its fullness, stretching across the world to all its famous and hidden corners. There, on the screen, Neruda watches the same waves that crash on Isla Negra's rocks today. The folk singer Hugo Arevalo, who now lives in Isla Negra himself, had told me that one of the things that had brought Neruda to live there was the ability to see the line between land and sea moving constantly, never fixed. I think that movement had a meaning in his poetry, he said. And as I myself saw it, that motion also had a role in the nuances of his life, in the balance between self-mystification and truth, in the need to adapt to shifting realities while always keeping his edge. That shore reflects all the changes he went through, all the battles, all the triumphs, all the tragedies of anyone's life, but certainly heightened in his, before coming back to the core. Neruda, mysterious as a sea, as much as we think we know him, as much as we could describe him that night in the reading and the film and music, as much as I try to in this book, will never know everything, because he wasn't only a figurehead, nor merely an icon, he was also simply a human being. As the audience watched those waves crashing over the black rocks of Isla Negra, they heard an actor read part of Neruda's poem, Lazy Bones. Working on the movie, I had heard that poem so many times that it had begun to lose its effect on me. But as I listened to it in that packed theater, the words struck me with renewed emotion. Neruda composed the poem overlooking the waves at Isla Negra, not long after the space race had begun. The quote-unquote metal objects he refers to are the new satellites circling above in the night sky. While the possibilities they represent may catch his attention, the poet is still consumed by the beauty right here on earth. Metal objects will still journey among the stars. Weary men will still go up to assault the gentle moon and install their pharmacies. In this season of swollen grapes, Wine begins its life between the sea and the mountains. In Chile, the cherries dance, dusky girls sing, and the water gleams from guitars. The sun, the sun knocks on every door and works miracles with wheat. The first wine is pink, sweet as a tender child. The second wine is robust, like the voice of a sailor. And the third wine is a topaz, a poppy, and a fiery blaze. My house has a sea in the earth, 
My woman has majestic eyes, the color of wild hazelnuts. When night falls, the sea adorns itself in white and green, and then the moon in sea foam dreams like maritime bride. I do not want any other planet. The poem's melody of innocent thoughts and imagery conveys that Neruda's work doesn't always have to be raw with politics or love, that at the heart of it all, his poetry is about the wonder of being human. That is what keeps people coming back to Neruda, the essential poetic expression of what we are at our core, the elementary within the complex, the ordinary and the infinite, the true and the unknowable. You just heard Mark Eisner, author of Neruda, The Poet's Calling, reading from his own work. That was beautiful. Was that your translation of the poem that you read? No, actually, I was hoping to get the chance to give credit to my friend Jessica Powell down the coast, Santa Barbara, who did this as well as many others, did the translation of City Lights edition, the first translation of Neruda's third book, Venture of the Infinite Man, the first time it's ever been translated into English this past November. Did you bring any other segments that you'd like to share with us? That was a nice reading. Let's talk about your book for a minute. I couldn't stop reading it night after night until I got to the very end. Unfortunately, I had to read it on Kindle, and I say unfortunate because it was too difficult to underline or put post-its. But to give you just a general feedback, one, that it was gripping, two, it was enlightening, that first part where his machismo, his sexism, was introduced, almost shocking, but I'd already had a clue of that because I saw a Chilean movie that showed the period where he had to be exiled from Chile, and they show him as not just a philandering husband, that's not such a big deal, but someone who was willing to betray his comrades for wine and prostitutes. And that was shocking, and I didn't know if that was the filmmaker's evil viewpoint or it was reflecting the truth. And then... You didn't mention that in your book, but you do talk about his treatment of women and and how he felt about them and his constant infidelity to all of the women that he wrote these beautiful love odes to. And then you actually take on that subject. How was that for you? Well, first of all, in terms of the film, I respect the Lorraine brothers and what they did with that film, just as filmmaking, as spectacular and brilliant acting. As they say, that's an anti-biopic, meaning that it's historical fiction. I actually disagree with, and didn't, one thing I really didn't like about that film, um, as much as I did like it, was how they depicted Neruda as that philandering and his behavior in those kind of orgy-type scenes. I don't think Neruda ever was like that. When they were risking their lives in the underground to help him escape from Chile, that he would, and and he was told, don't leave the apartment. Whatever you do, don't leave the apartment. He would leave the apartment, leave Matilde there in the house all alone, and then they show him going off to houses of prostitution where it was all about drinking and partying and really pretty trivial thing to put so many people's lives at risk. In all the research that I've read and all the people I've talked to who've researched that period and talked to people who actually um, who are in this book who actually housed him, but there's never any indication of that. I'm that, so glad. Oh, I'm so glad because that was that would be too tr- too cruel to think that he would betray his his own poems and his own ideals and his comrades. Yeah, uh, I mean, again, it's 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 a brilliant film. But it's also fiction, and so it's hard to separate that as a viewer. And even as I saw it for the first time, I was actually able to see a long cut work in progress of it with the director and producer as they were working on it. And I was working on my biography, and I was just like, I don't know what to do. I can't see because I can't. I don't want to get any of that in my head or um, and to divide that wall. But yes, that character Delia at the time, um, his second wife, who's there, and even how they depicted her, it worked for the film. But I. Of, of all the people in his life, personal life in terms of lovers and wives, she's my favorite. I didn't like people seeing her as, as they portrayed him, her. So in the book, 
you take on this subject of his his sexism and and how was that for you because through most of the book and for the most enjoyable parts of the book it's when you're praising him and when you join in his spirit and into his poetry and then every once in a while you have to stop and deal with these critiques these modern critiques i call them modern critiques because really it was expected for men to behave like that for most of history one of the first things when i started writing this book i did not want it to be a hagiographic book what does that mean uh, um praising as if they were your best friend and, and, but that i really wanted to hold him accountable to his truth when i started this book i really wanted to hold him and analyze and, and penetrate those all sides of him and already knowing that he had had these sides to him going into this because actually it's interesting that you said that about modern, modern critiques modern critiques and that it was expected of this in the past years because this book and it's recently is kind of happening in Chile as well right now before my book it's just gotten out in Spanish and will be in Chile in a couple of weeks and you know it, it also just as much as this book happened to finish it right right as Trump took office and we're talking about a resistance poet so Neruda's relevance today in the Trump administration and the timing of that and also you know today in the cultural conversation of me too you know not that I would have written any differently but in terms of that cultural modernness or timing of it a lot of people are picking up on it. I mean, every almost every review, as positive they've been, and when they say I unflinchingly critique him, but in that I bring this up, it's almost that they put a little disproportional attention of a short review on that area, and perhaps that's because of the cultural conversation at the time. But the fact is, and what I find very interesting, and not that everybody's read the book, but what the rape scene which is, you know, where he's at his worst and where people have called, I can't read Neruda anymore because he's a rapist. That's from his memoirs. That's the only account of that rape is what we have from his memoirs. Those memoirs were published posthumously by his wife, Matilde, in 1974, I believe. So that information, that scene that I analyze has been read, it's been out there for 30 or 40 years. I'm not saying, you know, one thing or another of people who've read it and not said anything, but it's when you put it all together, I think, then you kind of say, oh, wait, what's happening here? He's describing raping somebody. But that's from his memoirs, which you might have read at some point over the past three or four decades. No, I, I hadn't read it, but I have read your book. Well, of course, I'm very affected by the Me Too movement and by feminism, so all of that section caught my attention because the book made me battle with myself. As I read the book, and you would talk about the different poetic stages of his life, the different influences and kinds of poetry that he was writing at different periods— a lot of it was like new and very interesting information to me. I was learning about more about ways of writing, and since I'm always writing, that was very useful. But I would also have to deal with the fact, wait, but this is coming from this mouth of this imperfect human being. And then I'd have to go, yeah, that's you, Nina, an imperfect human being. That's all of us. So... Is there still stuff that you value from this poet, Pablo Neruda, that you have written odes to yourself? And I say, yes, there's so much that I value. He is still so moving. He is still so inspiring. And then when you describe socialist realism, when he takes up socialist realism, that is like the first time in my life that I actually read a definition of what is socialist realism. And I realized, oh, that sounds a lot like you, Nina. You like things to be upbeat. You like the sunny side of the street. You're definitely turned off by beat poets and existentialists and all their cloudiness. You're not that different than parts of Neruda either. And so then I had to come to terms with him because I love him. So it forced me to come to terms with him, and I could embrace Neruda's poetry again. 
And just very recently, for La Raza Chronicles, I recorded the Chilean poet Carlos Barón, who lives here in San Francisco. And he had written poems about Neruda, and I was happy to have that on the air. And then Alameda poet Andrina Zwinski had a wonderful poem about the exhuming of Neruda's bones. So I feel like I continue to promote and enjoy Neruda, and I had to come to terms with the fact that it's very hard in this part of the century for people to to be perfect or to or historic figures to be viewed as perfect. But it was a big struggle. It doesn't sound like it. I'm not articulating laying there, reading your book, falling asleep and arguing with myself until I could argue myself into a position where I could finally fall asleep. I read in bed. And again, this is going on not just here and, and not just because of my book or, you know, there's been debates happening in Chile and other places around his work for a while now. But it's that question that's very difficult, regardless of gender or of who you are, of the reader or the person, is what do you do with the art of men who have done monstrous acts? And I think we're struggling with that, you know, whether do we watch Woody Allen movies? And it's somewhat the same thing. And for some, it's too painful to separate the art from the criminal man. And I respect that. I mean, I think things are difficult. And there's no denying he could be a, let's just say in Spanish, un gran huevón. And, and what does that mean to read Neruda's poetry in light of him, writing about the rape as he did, or how to think about Neruda's spectrum of aspects, given not just his writing about the rape, but other problematic issues, not just when it comes to women, but as I said, political as well. For instance, after we were talking about all this, after she read my book, a Latina feminist activist friend of mine said that when Neruda, quote, stands up at Machu Picchu and says he speaks for the downtrodden, I'm just like, yeah, right, that's what serves you, and you're a narcissist and a misogynist, and that in your personal life, you've absolutely showed that dominating other people was almost more compelling or useful. And so for her, she still thinks... We should talk about him, think about him, and read him, that we shouldn't just stop reading the works who committed monstrous acts and are problematic. And this is just coming from her. Everybody has their own different take. I'll still keep reading his poetry, but I do have this in mind. But because they are a major part of literary history and that Neruda is deeply a part of literary history, of Latin American cultural history and global cultural history, and also looking at the social movements and activists who do hold him as somebody important. Neruda is a deeply important part of literary history and Latin American cultural history and global cultural history. So looking at him, at his life and his legacy, and its aesthetic accomplishments is incredibly valuable to us for a deeper understanding of things. But that's just one aspect of it. When taking on this book, when you asked me that first question, and I just thought it was very important to make spaces and look deeply at what these literary histories can offer us today. And I just hope that this book has the ability to make us think about this particular figure, Pablo Neruda, in a way that is more honest, since I looked at him in hopefully a very clear-eyed way. And again, remember, of course, that people have been reading about that rape scene as he presented it in his memoirs for over 40 years now. How I dealt with it was to make a contribution and to put it out there so there's space so that you could grapple with it at night. And I'm so glad. I'm, I'm hurt. It, it, it's weird because I'm hurt, but I'm glad. You know? and, and, and I know that you know, you know what I mean. And, but that's what... Well, that's you, why we write, to raise questions it, it, in people's minds. Exactly. And I'm not the one to answer it. I'm not defending him. I definitely do not defend him. You know, sometimes when you read parts of this book, it might be a little rosy. But I just think it's also even for global social movements. Many communities have put him, you know, put him kind of up on a pedestal for one reason or another. We all have. I have. Not as a social movement, but just, you know, me and who I was. And that these, these truths of his life might be detrimental to that image. And so what do we what do we do with that? And while it was very inspiring, he was also very problematic. As we're doing here, and I hope as in the last six weeks as this book's been out, 
in the discussions as I've been presenting it, whether it's the Bay Area Book Festival or at Penn World Words Festival in New York a couple weeks ago, that we're having that discussion and, and that other panelists are bringing this up. Because when we talk about all those pieces of the picture, it can only help us better understand who we are today and who we want to be moving forward as a society and as a literary community. I hope that the book can contribute to that conversation and the dynamics about the past generations and now the modern, as, as you said it, and going forward. Well, thank you so much. Mark Eisner, could you close by reading us a poem by Neruda? It would be my pleasure, <laughs> especially after that. I will read one of his odes, one of my favorite odes of his. You know, one of the things about the series of odes, he wrote really four books of odes, and, and there are these these odes to natural, usually natural, common day things, but where he could find the social utility that's involved in these things that we, we might take for granted or, or don't really realize. And But he also puts in a poem. I hope the listeners might be able to hear that. And, and this is Ode to Wine. It's from the Essential Neruda. It originally published the translation in the Essential Neruda, published by City Lights here across the bay in 2004. Ode to Wine. Wine, color of day. Wine, color of night. Wine with your feet of purple of topaz blood. Wine, starry child of the earth. Wine, smooth as a golden sword, soft as ruffled velvet. Wine, spiral-shelled and suspended, loving, marine. You've never been contained in one glass, in one song, in one man. Coral, you are gregarious, and at least mutual. Sometimes you feed on mortal memories. On your wave we go from tomb to tomb, stone cutter of icy graves, and we weep transitory tears. But your beautiful spring suit is different. The heart climbs to the branches, the wind moves the day, nothing remains in your motionless soul. Wine stirs the spring, joy grows like a plant, walls, boulders fall, Abysses close up, song is born. Oh, thou jug of wine in the desert, with the delightful woman I love, said the old poet. Let the pitcher of wine add its kiss to the kiss of love. My love, suddenly your hip is a curve of the wine glass filled to the brim. Your breast is a cluster, your hair the light of alcohol, your nipples the grapes, your navel pure seal stamped on your barrel of a belly. In your love, the cascade of unquenchable wine, the brightness that falls on my senses, the earthen splendor of life. But not only love, burning kiss, or ignited heart, you are wine of life, also fellowship, transparency, chorus of discipline, abundance of flowers. I love the light of a bottle of intelligent wine upon a table when people are talking, that they drink it, that in each drop of gold or ladle of purple they remember that autumn toiled until the barrels were full of wine, and let the obscure man learn in the ceremony of his business to remember the earth and his duties, to propagate the canticle of the fruit. Thank you, Mark Eisner. You've been listening to an interview by Nina Serrano with Mark Eisner about Eisner's latest biography of Pablo Neruda, Neruda, The Poet's Calling, available at wonderful independent bookstores and online. Neruda, The Poet's Calling.
You're listening to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. On today's show, we're going to talk about an exciting opportunity for people to share their love of Kizomba music and join this beautiful festival that's happening in Southern California very soon. It's happening around the corner in early July. I'm lucky to have on the line with me all the way from Southern California, Enzu, who's one of the coordinators and organizers of this festival. First off, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Let's just start off with the basics. There are some people listening that are already in love with this music and dance, but there are others that have probably never heard of it. Can you tell us a little bit about the history and origins and some of the influences of this dance and music? Yes, so Kizomba, it's a very popular dance. It uh, started in Angola. It's an African dance genre from Angola, and it's a partner dance, so it's, 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 you have to dance with you know, another another person. Think of it like the African tango. It's not really linked to ca- tango in any way, but you know, just to give you a feeling of what a kizomba dance looks like. So it was created around in the in the seven, 1970s after the uh, decolonization of Angola, a former Portuguese colony. And uh, it was initially created for the uh, diaspora of people who flew from Angola to Portuguese to to live, escaping the civil war that was going on at that time. So the goal of this music was just a way of these people to connect, reconnect with their homeland, motherland, and kind of remind themselves of all the good things that they miss, you know, the smell of the air, the family, the parties in the backyard, and things like that. This is basically how Kizomba started and migrated from Africa to Portuguese and then taking over the whole world right now. I'm talking to Enzu, who is a Kizomba lover. He's also someone who's worked hard to build community around Kizomba. And there's a festival that he, along with his partner, Oriel Su, have put together. And it's happening this summer. And it not only offers opportunities for people to dance, it offers opportunities for people to learn and get sucked into the energy of this music and dance. So, Enzu, if there's someone listening that hasn't seen this dance, how would you describe it? Would you say it's, you know, if someone says, is it like salsa? Is it like bachata? What what do you tell them? Yes, it's nothing like that. Sometimes you might think it's a little bit like bachata because the dancers are very close to one another. But it's a very emotional dance. It's all about two people coming together and making one. Generally, there's a lead and a follow. So it's more about intention. The follow needs to be able to read the intention of the lead and do the move that goes with it. It's a very sensual, very beautiful dance. Once you see it, it's very hard to just forget about it. So you are putting on this festival, and you're inviting wonderful teachers, and people are coming from far away. So for people who are in the Bay Area who already love Kizomba and want to dance more, tell them about what your festival will offer for them. Yes, so this is the first Kizomba festival in the city of Los Angeles. There are a few festivals that have been created that feature Kizomba, but this is the first festival that entirely focused on Kizomba. We bring in a lot of artists, some of the best from Angola, from Portugal, from Germany. We bring in Elisa Sala, who is today the queen of Kizomba and Jinga. You can look her up easily on YouTube or Facebook. And the goal is to really teach people and show them Give them the opportunity to learn more about how to dance this music, you know? Uh, a lot of people, like I said, people just get hooked to the dance as soon as they see it. Personally, all of my friends that I introduced to Kizomba, they just do it every day now. And the problem is that here in Southern California, it's very hard to find, you know, skilled instructors who, you know, easily teach this kind of thing. So our goal, our main goal is to grow this community in the U.S. and Southern California, and we bring in artists from Portugal. We bring in also Esther Martigues, who is uh, an artist from Germany, and we are bringing Kizomba DJs 
from Africa, from France. It's going to be great. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the dates and the times and how can people get involved? Because I'm reading on a site for your event that there's actually even going to be an opportunity for people to get certified to be able to train in Kisomba. So for people in the Bay Area who've been dancing this dance and love it and want to kind of step up their game or maybe they want to start teaching it, how can they connect to your festival? Yes, so we have a meetup page. We also have a Facebook page. And uh, they can also connect through Zoom that event, which I'll talk in a, in a little bit. But I think the easiest way would be to look, look up Los Angeles Kizomba Festival on Facebook. We have a Facebook group. We have the Facebook event page. And it's uh, pretty easy to find it that way. You could also find it on Meetup, or you can find it on Zoom that event by searching for Kizomba events in Los Angeles. And yes, there will be an instructor training certification from uh, Elisa Sala, who's, like I said, the queen of Kizomba in Dinga right now. She's coming, she's originally from Portugal. She knows this dance inside out. She's been dancing since she was a little girl. And we're hoping to train 10 instructors so that they get certified by Elisa Sala and along those lines, they could uh, help grow this community and teach, you know, this dance to people who might not have the opportunity to attend the festival. And it's a two days of workshops. Workshop will be from 12 p.m. to 6 p.m. every day. We have a beach party in the afternoon on Sunday, and uh, obviously the parties at night. So this is two days, three nights of full Kizomba love. And what would you say to people listening here in the Bay who say, I love this music, but I'm not that great. I just started dancing. I don't know if I should go to Los Angeles. I'll be intimidated. What would you say to people who are kind of contemplating making the trip down from the Bay? Yes, so that's the reason why we invested our own money to bring all different instructors from the different genres of Kizomba in Los Angeles because a lot of people get intimidated, you're right. They don't feel like they can learn it or, you know, they, they, this is a dance for them. So what I can say is that it's going to be two days of full trainings. We have a few tracks. We have the beginner tracks. We have the intermediate tracks. And we also have the advanced track in addition to the instructor training certification. So if you haven't danced Kizomba and you don't know what it is, and you feel unsure about whether you can learn or not, just come and give it a try. I can guarantee, personally guarantee that if somebody has come to our festival and they are not happy about the level of the instructors or they feel like they didn't learn anything, we will give them a refund because, again, our goal here is to show people how amazing this dance is and help grow the community. We're not really doing this festival for the money at this time. We really want to show California, you know, crowd, which is, which is actually a very demanding crowd regarding this dance. People have been asking for this a lot. So we want to show them what Kizomba is, how, you know, get them, you know, on board on this dance and, you know, give, teach them the ABC so that they can go from D to Z on their own. And the festival is from July 6th to July 8th, 2018, right after the uh, Independence Day. Thank you so much. I've been speaking to Enzu. He's one of the organizers of this festival. It's the Summer Kizomba Festival in Los Angeles, the first of its kind, with a lot of instruction and dance parties, so a lot of opportunities. And so here I see on the website that you have called um, that some people refer to Kizomba as African tango. And I think that, as you mentioned, it's something that it's hard to describe, to talk to people about it. It's really best for them to see it. But I think the other piece that's exciting is that you're also bringing in a lot of people who really know this music as well. And the music is something that it's its own world that many people don't get an opportunity to dive into. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about the musical aspect of the of the festival? Yes. So the way it would work, it's uh, we start at 11 a.m. every day. And from 12 p.m. to 6 p.m., there will be workshops, 15-minute workshop with about 15 different instructors with many different genres, such as the, the Kizomba genres, but some derivative genres, so, such as urban keys and semba 
and a very popular dance called Kuduru and Afro House. So we have teachers specifically for each of these different genres. And uh, so we have a workshop from 12 p.m. to 6 p.m. Uh, Saturday and Sunday. And uh, at night, we have parties where people will have the opportunity to socialize, connect, and uh, put the, what they learned in practice on the dance floor. We would like to support the radio channel, and we are offering four full pass tickets to your listeners. So we hope that will help on uh, a little bit. And so again, this is a unique opportunity to learn this amazing dance. There will be an Kizomba instructor training certifications. We bring in a lot of instructors from the from overseas, from Africa and from Europe, including very good DJs. And we're hoping to see you there and uh, have fun and let's Kizomba. Enzo, and how can people get access to these free tickets? Thank you so much for offering them to our listeners. So, so to reach us on Facebook, we want to make sure that this is very transparent. So what we will do, we will look, uh, look up the first four Facebook posts that were are made on the Los Angeles Kizomba event page. So the event page is Los Angeles Kizomba Festival, first edition. The first four people who will write a post about this saying that they listen to the, uh, the radio and they, they, you know, contacting us regarding that. And we will offer them this, uh, this free ticket. Again, the event is from July 6th to July 8th at the Hilton Hotel. We want to make sure we support the, the station. So up to 10 people who will give a donation to the station, we will offer them free free tickets if they show us proof that they have given a donation to the station. That's very generous. Thank you so much for supporting the community radio here in the Bay Area and beyond. How about as we end this interview, it'd be great to leave people with some music to get the energy of Kizomba because it's such a beautiful music that a lot of people don't get to hear on the radio very often. So why don't you introduce a song or tell us about a song that you'd like us to play? There is a song that I like a lot about an artist called Beauty. And um, I would love for you to play that song because it will give uh, people a small idea of the Kizomba beat, what Kizomba is, is and uh, given an idea what it is, it's called Faz Acontece. All right, so we will hear that now. We've been speaking to Enzu. He is one of the founders of the first ever Kizomba Festival in Los Angeles. It's an exciting opportunity and a great way for people to connect with others that love this music, dance, and culture. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Thank you so much, and uh, I thank you again for helping us spread the word about this amazing dance that is Kizomba. Ai, 
não faz isso sem você me mata Para, fica quieta e não tentes me apanhar a matar Você deve ser a coisa mais linda que Deus já desenhou As outras ao pé de ti não se comparam, são só rascunho Então eu não vou dar passada, vou só ficar parado Sentindo o calor do teu corpo Contigo está colado Então me abraça Me abraça Bem forte Fecha os olhos E deixa-te levar Faz Faz acontecer Faz Não tenhas medo Faz Faz acontecer Faz Me gosta Faz Faz acontecer Faz
Muchas gracias por estar con nosotros. You've been listening to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. If you'd like to share this program with a friend or listen to it again, you can find us on soundcloud.com slash La Raza Chronicles. If you'd like to find out more about what's happening in your community y también estar al tanto, be up on upcoming events, you can always like us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash La Raza Chronicles. Muchísimas gracias y buenas noches. Thank you.